normally on a communion Sunday, I will uh, uh, give you a communion sermon, which is uh, reduced in nature uh, to account for the time. I want to tell you up front that as I studied our passage this morning, I was unwilling to abbreviate because it's too good. And so I want you to stay engaged with me, and we're going to walk through this together from start to finish, and I know with certainty that it will be worth our time. So as we read Paul's letter to the Colossians, as we've done so thus far, we know that he is writing for a reason. There is something that has captured his attention that has spurred him on to write this letter to this small church in Asia. We know that Epaphras, the founder of this church, has visited Paul in Rome while he's in prison and given him a first-hand account of the condition of this little church. And it appears that what Paul has seen so far, he's been encouraged by. He tells them in his letter how much he gives thanks for their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. And so for the most part, the report from their pastor must have been good. And yet, as we will see in our passage this morning, Paul understands that there are these subtle attacks from false teachers that that threaten the integrity of their genuine faith in Christ. We don't get a lot of clues as we go through this. He seems to leave out most of the details, but enough to know that it's dangerous. Paul instead seems to focus his attention on what is true in order to minimize the distraction of what is false. He's calling the Colossians to fix their eyes on Jesus so that they're not carried away by the persuasive arguments of the false teachers. So that they wouldn't be distracted from that most important focus of the object of their faith. This reminds me of one of my favorite baseball movies a few years ago that came out uh, called For Love of the Game. And in this uh, movie, you may remember the central character is a a 40-year-old pitcher by the name of Billy Chappell. Uh, Billy's at the end of his career, and in the movie he finds himself in the end of the season, in the last series of the season, against the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium. Uh, to set the scene, it's important to know that he played for the Tigers, and the Tigers were out of playoff contention. But the Yankees needed this win to get into the playoffs. Uh, to make matters worse, Billy had not had a good season, very likely his last season, but on this particular night, he's on the verge of pitching a perfect game. (laughs) Not only would that put him in the history books, but it also would knock the Yankees out of playoff contention, which is always a good thing, (laughs) right? Well, in this particular scene, Billy approaches the mound, and as he does, the movie allows you to get a picture and grasp all that is going on around him. They zoom in on some of the Yankee fans that are yelling out at him, You're washed up! You're too old! You can't do this! There's no way! Then you hear some of the Tigers fans, Come on, Billy! We know you can do it! You're our man! And then amidst all that, you hear people selling popcorn and drinks, and the music is playing loud. The picture is chaos. And you wonder, as you're listening to all this stuff going on, how does anybody concentrate in a setting like this? Then Billy steps onto the mound. He looks directly at the catcher, and he says to himself, clear the mechanism. That was his way of zoning in on one thing so that everything else went silent. 
And in the movie, all those voices and all those noises, gone. You couldn't hear anything. Except Billy focusing his attention on one thing. I believe when we look at our passage this morning, this happens to be Paul's strategy as well. He wants us to focus on one thing. So that all the distractions that are around us fall silent. And I think it's particularly relevant in our modern society because we live in a world of distraction. Perhaps like no other time in history, we have a multitude of things that are competing for our attention. There's rarely a moment that goes by that we're not distracted by cell phones, emails, text messaging, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Do I need to go on? Our daily routine is consumed by things that compete for our attention. And listen to me. It's not an accident. Even though none of these things in and of themselves may not be bad. There is a strategy of our enemy that intends to fill our mind so full that we have no room or time to focus on Christ. And for that reason, we need to clear the mechanism. We need to reduce our focus to one thing. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that we can be grounded in our faith. So that we can grow and be encouraged in our faith. And center our attention on Jesus as the object of our faith. That's our goal this morning. To fix our eyes on one thing. Jesus Christ. So that all the distractions around us fall silent. Will you pray with me that that would be the case? God, we do come to you knowing that what we are asking for is an act of God. It will take a miracle to shut off all the noises of the distractions that surround us to center our attention on you. But we believe that greater is you who is in us than he who is in the world who controls all these distractions. And so we are going to trust ourselves to put our faith and trust in you so that you can accomplish the impossible. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. And let's look at that together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul begins this part of his letter by encouraging 
the Colossians to be grounded in their faith by focusing on what they know to be true. And he says this after having spent the first part of his letter reminding him of the the truths that he intends for them to focus on, namely, to focus their attention on Jesus Christ. You'll remember that he tells them that he is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That he eternally existed, he had no beginning or no end. That all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And although everything that He created has ultimately been corrupted by sin, Jesus has an answer in the cross. The Scripture tells us that He reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. As we talked about last week, that includes you. Even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though, as he described, that we were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Christ died for us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature, children of wrath, God, because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You have been delivered, Paul says, from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul has gone to great lengths, it seems, to to communicate to the Colossian church. And let me remind you of the same this morning, that what comes to mind when you think about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. Paul goes on to tell the Colossians that, that this focus on Christ is worth fighting for. In the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. That word struggle that he uses comes from the the Greek word agnon, from which we get, or agon, from which we get our English word agony. It was a word that was used actually to describe the effort being made by athletes who competed in the Olympic Games. So that hard effort they did to finish that race well, to to hit the tape running, is the picture that Paul has in mind. And it seems as if he's wanting them to know that the reward at the end of that race is worth the effort that it takes to cross the finish line. And he speaks from experience because his life in ministry has been a struggle to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in a world that did not want to hear it. We know that he communicates that throughout uh, many of the letters. If you want to, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Here Paul gives one of the examples of, of those struggles that he faced in this process. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction we came, that came to us, in Asia. Now, let me remind you that Colossae, Laodicea, uh, Ephesus, these are churches in Asia. So he's speaking specifically to what they endured to bring the message to these churches. And he says at the end of that verse that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. 
There was agony and struggle to proclaim this message to the point that they weren't sure they were going to make it out alive. But Paul says it's worth it. It's worth it. But it's not just the external influences that were difficult to to persevere through. It was also the emotional toll as well. If you're in 2 Corinthians, go ahead and flip on over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. And look at verse 28. Paul says, apart from such external things like he just alluded to, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And here's why. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? His point here is that caring is not without cost. Paul did not emotionally separate himself from the people to whom he was ministering. He he did not distance himself so that he wouldn't feel those burdens, but he wept with those who wept. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He carried that emotional burden with him because he cared so deeply for them. Those are the kinds of struggles that that Paul faced, and he wants them to know that the the assurance of, of their salvation is a reward worth fighting for. And he goes on to explain that there is a battle. If you go back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Here's the first clue that there are these voices that tickle their ears that want to pull them away from their focus on Christ. It's subtle. But let me suggest to you that it would be a great strategy of the enemy to distract you before he attacks you. And that's exactly what's going on in the Colossian church. And so Paul wants to remind them to stand strong in what they know to be true. The focus on Christ is worth fighting for. So Paul goes on and and continues to encourage the Colossians to stand strong in their faith together. He says in in verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So what I hear Paul saying to the Colossians is, You're doing well. You're standing strong together. I'm encouraged by your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you read that section of his letter, you get the idea that one of the reasons that they are able to stand strong in the midst of these distractions is because of their life within community. He seems to to make that connection between their life in the covenant fellowship of the body and the strength of their personal convictions. Look over at verse 2. He says, That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Paul seems to be communicating that, that growth in Christ flows out of your fellowship with other believers. If you stop and think about this, it makes perfect sense. For example, just consider for yourself a time in which you were going through a difficulty, a hard situation and remember in that time a brother or sister in christ who came to you and stood beside you who spoke words of encouragement spoke truths that you needed to hear in the midst of doubts and struggles 
And you know firsthand when that happened in your life that you experienced the love of Christ in a most meaningful way. Am I right? In the same way, you can think of times that somebody came to you in a time of need and you probably thought to yourself, I'm not sure what I have to offer here, but you loved them so you cared for them to the point that maybe they come back to you later and say, I'm so grateful for what you did during that time and the words that you spoke. And if you're like me, what you're going to tell them was, that wasn't me. That was Christ in me. The point here is that when we live in fellowship with each other and connect with one another as God intended, we learn about Christ by how we see Christ working in and through our lives. Sometimes it's because of who is ministering to us. Sometimes it's because we are ministering to others. But in all those things, it's Christ in us. And our understanding grows through that experience. Our knowledge of God is dependent upon our fellowship with one another. He finishes that by saying, knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself. Let me just point out one of the obvious things here that is important for us to understand within the life of our independent society. And that is this. Isolation from the community of God inhibits our spiritual growth. It inhibits our spiritual growth. See, God created us for community. We are designed to live in fellowship with one another, to encourage one another. The Bible is filled with one another's. And when we choose to live outside of that design, I believe wholeheartedly we forfeit God's intended blessing Because that's not the way he created it. It's not good for man to be alone. Invest yourself in the life of community. Paul says, keep standing together. You don't need to learn new truths as these persuasive arguments are trying to distract you. Instead, you need to know Jesus. And you know Jesus best when you live within the context of the community he created you for. You're doing good, Paul says. Keep standing together. Continue to proclaim Christ. Admonishing one another. Teaching one another. So that you can present one another complete in Christ. See, they're standing strong. And so now Paul encourages them to continue growing in their faith. Look at verse 6. It says, And you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And Paul is describing a, a pattern of personal devotion and loving discipleship that is a formula for spiritual growth stay the course he says and don't be carried away don't be distracted by these false teachers as they try to captivate you with things that that tickle your ears with smooth talk of persuasive arguments that ultimately lead you away from the truths that set you free 
Paul is telling them to go back and remember their heart when they gave it to Christ. And he's telling them to remember things like surrender. When you come to Christ at that point of faith and you give your life to Him. I gave you a little bit of my story last week. And I told you that there, there was a point in my life where I came to the understanding of the gospel. And I, in that moment, gave my life to Christ and literally put my life into His hands. I surrender it all. But I'm just like you. And over time, isn't it easy to take some of those things that we gave to God originally and want them back? So what we had originally done to surrender to all, now we want some of it back. And our surrender moves from giving it everything to giving Him some things, maybe most things, but not all things. That was the temptation of the influence of the world in their life. And if they continued down that track, then the gratitude that they began their walk with Christ in would soon be taken for granted. And so instead of having that heart when they began to follow Christ to serve the Lord, God, wherever you tell me to go, I will go. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. I will love you with all my heart, mind, and strength. And yet, as we continue in that pattern, we have this temptation when influenced by the world to expect that God deserves or we deserve something from God because of all the great things we are doing. What started out as a heart to serve now says, but I think you owe me something along the way. Our gratitude is taken for granted. And if that continues, what began in humility turns into pride. We begin our walk with Christ by saying, with all sincerity, I can't do this without you. (laughs) But over time, if we follow the influences of the world, we begin to convince ourselves, I can do some things without you. I'll let you know when I need you. And Paul is calling the Colossians to return to that which they began their walk with Christ with. That heart of surrender. That heart of gratitude. That heart of humility. Because these smooth-talking false teachers are threatening your freedom in Christ. They're wanting to to take you captive by religious traditions and and empty philosophies. And he goes on to explain in in verse 8 how they lure you in. He really seems to highlight two specific things. Human traditions and the elementary principles of the world. The human traditions, I believe, as we read Paul's letter, is what he's describing are those things that we base our beliefs on, that that we think about or assume to be true because of the opinion of others instead of understanding the truth of what God's Word says. I base my beliefs on what I think rather than what God says. I told you recently about a conversation that I've had with a gentleman who comes to my office fairly often and and tries to convince me of what he has concluded in his mind. And that is that that Jesus is our Savior, but He is not God. And we have long conversations with each other, and I'll open passages like we've looked at in Colossians, and I'll say, well, how, how would you see this? It seems to be quite straightforward that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things could have been created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, that all the fullness of God dwells within Him. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How, How do you see that? The first thing that he does is he goes to quote a scholar who has an interpret this differently, 
so that they're really not talking about Jesus as God, but Jesus as a God, different from the God. And I'll go back and I say, well, what is, what, how does that come out through the Scripture? And he goes back to the scholar. Well, what about the Scripture? He goes back to the scholar. It's the opinions of men and human tradition that takes our focus off of Christ. These human traditions are what lead us away from surrender and to tempt us to believe that we can find our own way, that our finite minds can understand and explain an infinite God, and we just need to follow it logically. The elementary principles of the world, I believe, are different. They're different from this humanistic philosophy that Paul speaks of originally. I think these humanist, or excuse me, these elemental principles of the world have something to do with basing your faith on a unique spiritual experience. And the reason I say that is because when you look at the elementary principles of the world in Scripture, they're always referring to the spiritual realm and specifically the demonic spiritual realm. If you want to, you can look it over at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. This is one of those examples that uh, I would look at for this. And it says in chapter 4, verse 3, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under, here it is, the elemental things of the world. We've talked... Uh, at length about that passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath. And we read that passage and we understand that we lived at that time under Satan's rule. So these elementary principles of the world have their origin in the spiritual realm in ways that distract us from the person and work of Christ. These spiritual experiences shift our attention from what we do for God to what we believe God should do for us. Something that we should feel and, and experience emotionally that He owes us. Human traditions, spiritual experiences distract us from the person and work of Christ. We end up with a faith, like my friend, based on the opinion of men or feelings that are not centered on the work of Christ. Paul's advice to counteract these distractions is to go back to your roots. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Build on the foundation of your sincere faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. Strong roots promote the growth of a healthy tree. Jan and Linda Whitaker went to Hawaii recently and she brought back this amazing picture. I've never seen it before. Maybe you are familiar with a tree called a banyan tree. Okay? You, you look at this tree from a distance and it actually looks like a forest. It, it looks like a grove of trees. But when you get inside what appears to be a grove of trees, you learn that it's one tree. And what happens is, is that as the branches extend out, they drop aerial roots that then go into the ground and establish another point for the tree to continue to grow. And it continues to do this over and over again because of this incredible root system. It is almost an indestructible tree. It's an amazing thing. Now, I want you to keep that picture in your mind. And now I want you to go to one of the things that is familiar to all of us in West Texas, and that is a tumbleweed. <laughs> right? 
A tumbleweed has one very small root that over time with age becomes brittle. And when that happens and a gust of wind comes, what occurs? It comes loose. And where does it go? Anywhere the wind wants to take it. Right? And that is so true for us. The question is, what does your root system look like? Are you like the banyan tree that is rooted and established in the truth of God's Word and you go there frequently and you seek Him and you want to know Him? Or is it like the tumbleweed? So that with every gust of wind, every wind of doctrine, you're tossed here and there, losing all stability because your root system is so weak. See, our faith grows stronger as our roots grow deeper. What comes to mind to me, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you, is a passage in Psalms. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, and maybe I'll add here, or listen to the persuasive arguments of the false teachers. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He soaks in God's truth. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Our faith grows stronger as our roots grow deeper. And our gratitude, I believe, is a good barometer of our spiritual health. I think Paul, in this passage, intentionally gives us something to look at to tell us where our heart is. He says at the end of uh, that verse seven or eight or seven, he says, "As you were instructed in overflowing with gratitude." When we get distracted by the things of the world and the arguments of the world and the the distractions that surround us, Christ seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller. When we focus on our circumstances, we can even convince ourselves as Christians, gosh, I just hope God comes through on this. I'm not sure I can do it. I'm not. And we end up ending, finding ourselves in a place of fear and anxiety. But when we stop and go back to our roots and remember what God has accomplished on our behalf, when we look back and see what He's done in our past, it gives us hope because we know that He's trustworthy and we can depend on Him in our future. And our fear turns to trust. Faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, go back to your roots. And then he finishes this section by giving his main point when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Verse 9, he says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. Christ is not separate from God or in some way less than God. You see, this human reasoning and these demonic distractions try to convince you of such a thing, but it is empty in what Paul is trying to communicate to us under the inspiration of the Spirit is that Jesus Christ is full. Back in verse 3, he said that he is full of all wisdom and knowledge. The whole treasure belongs to him. Here he says that all the fullness of deity dwells in him. As the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And by faith, you are made complete when His fullness indwells in your life. 
Paul seems to expand on this same idea in Colossians through his letter to the Ephesians. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. A familiar verse to all of us, but listen to what he says. Again, praying for the church in Ephesus. And if you'll remember when we began our study of Colossians, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians at the same time he wrote his letter to the Colossians while he was in prison in Rome. And so you would expect to see some things being echoed. This is one of them. Verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with all power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think as we read what Paul has said here in this prayer in Ephesians, we will see echoes of what he's communicated in his letter to the Colossians. There's three things that that I think are important for us to take away. The first one is live in community. He says, be rooted and grounded in love so that you are able to comprehend with all the saints. We are created for community. And isolation will always inhibit our spiritual growth. We grow in Christ through fellowship with other believers. See, that's part of God's design. And when we live within the context of God's design, we experience the fullness of His blessings. And when we step out of God's design, whether it's this or anything else that He's laid out, we forfeit those blessings. So let me encourage you, as a body of Christ, as a community of believers, to dive deep in fellowship. To live authentically with one another so that you are not putting on a mask to be somebody that you're not, but be who you are. Live authentically. Dive deeply. Invest your life into the lives of those that God has called you to live with within the context of this church family. And and if you think about it, don't you want to invest things that have a long-term view? Right? When you invest your money, you want to invest in something that has a long-term view. Is there anything more long-term than eternity? No, no, there's not. So take the time to invest deeply, authentically, into relationships that carry on into eternity. And we get a chance to begin that right now. So live inside of community. But Paul also says, live outside your limits. He says, God is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So the point here is, don't limit God to what you can comprehend. Don't limit God to what you can comprehend. Take steps of faith that go beyond your personal capacity. It says, beyond what you can ask or imagine. So take risks. Trust in God to do things that you can't possibly accomplish on your own. I had the opportunity to sit down with Chris and Amy Gulick this week and was so encouraged by their testimony of faith. 
And one of the things they shared with me was a recent decision to be, get involved in a community uh, uh, college ministry that they really didn't have a lot of friends in, and there was some hesitation because, quite frankly, they were comfortable where they were. But they thought, you know, we really feel like the Lord wants us to do this. Let's take a step of faith. They went on to explain how that decision has spurred them on and challenged them to grow in Christ like they have never had before. And I know firsthand, as I listen to them in my office, tell me what God is doing in their life, that He is, in fact, at work. And it was because they took a step of faith outside of their comfort zone beyond their own capacity to trust God to do things that they couldn't accomplish on their own. It's okay for you to be in a place where you say to yourself, I can't do this, but Christ in me can. Live outside of yourself. Last thing, cultivate a thankful heart. Some of you have heard of the author by the name of Ann Voskamp. Uh, she wrote a book, uh, A Thousand Gifts. She didn't intend to write that book. It was actually her own personal spiritual journey. It's actually ended up on the New York Times bestseller, Terry tells me, for, for some time now. But the book began as a journal where she took time to reflect on God's blessings in her life. And the reason she did that is she was consumed by anxiety and fear and all the things that were going on, worrying about her children, worrying about finances, worrying about all these things, and so much so that that became the center of her attention. So she said, I'm going to change that. Instead, I'm going to start focusing on that which is true and right and good, and I'm going to count the blessings that God has given me in my life. And she starts a journal. And she just writes down things that she loves, things that make her happy, things that remind her of God's provision. And the next thing you know, her whole attitude changed. Because she began to realize what God has done in her past and trust Him for what He would do in her future. So let me invite you to join my family as we've started doing the same thing this past week. We've got a journal that sits on our kitchen table. And in that, we've told our boys, here's what I want you to do. Anytime you think of something or you have an experience of of something that makes you happy, something that you love, something that just reminds you of how good God is, write it in the journal. And we're just going to keep this journal. We're just going to keep adding to it. And we're going to do it until we get to a thousand things. And then we're going to go back and be reminded of what God has done. And I believe it's going to shape our perspective because the thankfulness of our heart is a good barometer of the spiritual health of our heart. So live inside of community. Live outside of your limits. Cultivate a thankful heart. And do all this by fixing your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith. Allow that focus to cause all the distractions that surround you to go silent as you put your trust in Him. Let's pray. God, we pray that uh, You would help us not just hear this message this morning and be challenged by the truths of Your Word, but to carry it out those doors because that's where the voices are. It's pretty silent in here, Father. Because we don't hear them as clearly. But as soon as we walk out those doors, they begin. The phone rings. The email dings. The text message. The Instagram. The Twitter. All these things consume our attention. So, Father, would you give us a renewed commitment this week to fix our eyes on you. To cultivate a thankful heart. To to live outside of our limits. And to put our trust in you. Father, give us the ability to make sure that if we fill our minds with anything, that it is on Jesus Christ our Savior. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.